on the 9th of November 1989, the Berlin Wall dramatically fell. Apparently in some districts of Germany, you could actually walk from rooftop to rooftop across the line from east to west. So close was the proximity of those that lived in the east and those that lived in the west. There was a young couple, Marion and Jens, in 1987. and They were students and they desperately wanted to move to get out of East Germany and moved to what they saw was this dreamlike picture of West Germany. They lived just five minutes' walk from the border. They were so desperate for freedom that they considered jumping over the wall, but they'd been warned, they'd heard the stories that jumping over the wall could easily lead, as it had to many in the past, being shot. And so they desperately wanted to head west, but they couldn't. And so what they did was hatch an extraordinary plan. Their plan was, in order to head west, they'd in fact head east. They wanted to get to West Germany, but they decided they'll go all the way around the other side of the planet. They decided to go through Russia, and then Mongolia, and then to China. Their goal being the Beijing embassy, uh, the embassy in West Germany, in Beijing, where they could gain citizenship. So in the summer of 1987, they embarked on this journey. Some of us uh, around summer love to take a road trip. Well, this was no ordinary road trip. They backpacked until they ran out of money. Then they hitchhiked. Then they came across ravines and rivers they hadn't prepared. And so what they did is they just built a canoe with the materials that they found around them to cross these rivers. And they made it to China, remarkably. And they stayed in a Buddhist monastery, only a couple of days from Beijing, their goal. So excited were they about the prospect of gaining their freedom that they let the monks know that this was their plan. But it seems the monks were more committed to communism than their freedom because those monks that they told actually dobbed them in to the secret police and they ended up being arrested. But it's an interesting story, isn't it? Here are two people that were very driven, very motivated, very focused on this this reality, this desire. And it was that hope of their future, the hope of freedom, the hope of what was on the other side of the wall that drove them every step of the way. The hope drove them to leave behind their family, relative safety, to use all the means possible, to expend all their energy just to get a chance of crossing that wall. The author J.R.R. Tolkien writes some beautiful letters to his sons. And he says in one of his letters, in fact, we're actually a lot like Jens and Marion. Tolkien says that we all long for something just across the way, but it's got a, there's a barrier. He says this, it's there as a quote in your outline. He says, we long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it. What Tolkien's saying there is that, if you like, we are on this east 
side of Eden. And yet, within creation, within our world, within our lives, there's glimpses that tell us that there is something better, that there's something beyond this reality that we experience. I don't know, have you heard this phrase? It's, uh, it seems in my mind to become increasingly popular the last couple of years, a better version of yourself. Have you heard this phrase being, you know, people want to be a better version of themselves? themselves. I think that's really tapping into what Tolkien is speaking about here. There's a dissatisfaction with this world, with, in fact, who we are, and we want something beyond that. Well, what we're going to see this afternoon is a vision of what is beyond this world now. See, our problem is, I don't think we look over the wall, so to speak. I don't think we're looking over that wall. I think we're looking at the same side. We're looking at the east to a slightly better version of what we have now. But I hope as we open up the scriptures in the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to see a vision of something far better, a vision of our hope, a vision of our future. And we just need a glimpse. All Jens and Marion had to drive them all that way was just a glimpse of the West. And here this afternoon, all we need is just a glimpse, not of Eden, but of the new Eden, of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ is at the centre. And if we can glimpse that just for a moment this afternoon, then that will be, that will be something for us to drive our hopes to secure our future. I want to start in Genesis chapter 2, if you turn to Genesis chapter 2, because we see in the book of Genesis that humanity's uh, destiny spins around two trees. Have a look there in Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. It says that the Lord God had planted a tree in the east in Eden and he put a man there that he had formed. And then the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Here we have a vision as the Bible unfolds at its very first moments of this habitat for humanity, an environment for which humanity is to exist. And it's populated by these trees that God has placed within this garden, within this garden of Eden. And you'll notice there that these trees are not just good to look at, verse 9, they're also good for food. Some of us are quite besotted by the shape, the look, even the feel of a tree. Others of us could drive past millions of trees along the road and not notice one. But here in the garden, these trees are to be appreciated for their look. But it's not simply their look. They're pleasing to the eye and they're good for food. Why? Because we're getting a hint about the nature of this world that God has created, this garden that he has made. Here, life is presented as a banqueting table. Here, life is to be enjoyed. It's to be, these trees are to be looked at. And their fruit is tasty. It's to satisfy the desires of humanity. This picture that we have in these early chapters of Genesis is one of unrestrained joy. It's a picture where, where humans just fit and it feels right and it looks right and it tastes right. 
And all this is captured, verse 9, in the middle of the garden. In the middle of the garden there in verse 9, there's this special kind of tree, a tree of life, a tree for which life comes from. The centre of this garden is this tree. But it's not just trees we have in the garden. No, Genesis is at pains to also tell us about the rivers. There's trees, but there's also rivers there in verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And as you read on, you see that this river is a source of blessing. It's not just a source of water, it's a source of blessing. And this river then divides itself into four different sub-rivers, north, south, east and west. And so the picture that you have here is a complete and comprehensive irrigation system of blessing from the tree, taken from these rivers out into the garden, taking with it not just water but the blessing from this tree. See the picture here as God creates Eden? It's one that is literally bursting and teeming and unrestricted with life in every direction. Who knows what Eden means? The word Eden means delight. And here, as humanity is in this garden, they are to enjoy it, to look at it, to know its fruit. The English poet Dante says the worst moment for an atheist is when he is genuinely thankful and has nobody to thank The creation that we see here in Genesis chapter 2 is one for which God shows a high level of intent. He is formed, he is the creator, and he's formed this creation in a particular way. He's formed it for humanity's enjoyment, for their joy. And why is it so brimming with life, this garden? Why? Well, we're told it's because God is at the centre. At the centre of this garden, this garden that is made for for humanity, is not actually humanity. At the centre of this garden was not Adam himself, but this tree of divine life. See what Genesis is saying? God is the source of this blessing. He is the source of life. And if God is there, then blessing is there. If God is there, then life is there. Life is abundant. This is the picture that we get. These are two things. Rivers of life. The tree of life. Because God is at the centre of this world. And man is to simply enjoy it. If you flick down to verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, the language there of working this garden to take care of it is, is before the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And so to, to work this garden is to pull the fruit off. It's to enjoy this abundance. God has created it for humanity. God has created it for humanity's joy. And humanity's job within this garden is just to take the fruit and enjoy it. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. Man serves God. God creates this world with such potential for joy. 
A man's responsibility is just to listen to the command of God, and when he does, he enjoys this creation. By serving God, he enters the highest form of blessing. You see there in verse 16, there is a prohibition. There is a rule. There is something for which they cannot eat amidst this world that is teeming with things to eat. They must not eat of any tree. They are free to eat of any tree, but they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The tree of life stands next to what will become the tree of death. So despite this garden's blessing, despite its vitality, despite its life, here humanity is placed with a decision, a fine line, a razor-sharp edge between obedience to God leading to blessing, disobedience to God leading to curse. And for those of us who have been reading the Bible a little while, we know what happens in the next chapter, in chapter 3. We, knew, we know from chapter 3, verse 6, that humanity took what they weren't to take and they ate it. Because seeking power to be like God is the reality of humanity's sin. But man's joy, our reality as human beings, doesn't consist of us being like God. Our joy, our purpose, consists of us being with God. Why is there blessing? Because God and humanity are together in this garden. And when humanity disobeys, well, we see the result of it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, 23, sorry. The Lord God banished humanity from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. With humanity's disobedience, there's no way back. God has offered blessing. He's given humanity the choice. They've chose to disobey him, and so curse is brought upon them, and now they are excluded from the garden. And death enters. Death enters this pristine world. It starts to mar The fruit, which was for enjoyment, starts to rot. And as we see the Bible unfold, we see this reality that death creeps in because humanity has distanced itself from the source of life and blessing. Blessing and life were found in the garden because God was there. When humanity disobeys God, they distance themselves from God. And so blessing and life are not there. And we all know the reality of death, how it hangs as a shadow over all of us, over those we love. Death comes in and destroys our joy. Death ridicules our humanity. And so as we confront death, as we live in a world that's been corrupted by sin, we're peering over that wall. We're longing for reality beyond 
Eden. And this is the wonderful thing about the God for which we see in the Old Testament. He's one of mercy. He's one of salvation. Humanity has disobeyed God and yet the story of the Old Testament is one of God rescuing the disobedient. And what's really interesting is to notice the language that God chooses to use as he speaks about the rescue for humanity. Don't have to look this one up, but uh, just listen to it in Exodus chapter 15, verse 17. He's speaking about the salvation that he will bring to his people, and he says, You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went over the sea, The Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on the dry ground. Here's a promise and a recall of what God has done to rescue his people. But notice the language of how he speaks about this rescue. The language is as if he's taking his people back. To this garden, this garden that they were once excluded from. At once, as God created this garden, what did he do? He peeled back the waters such that the land could rise. And as God rescues his people from Egypt, what does he do? He peels back the water so the land might rise and his people are rescued. Humanity has disobeyed in Eden. God has promised that he will save his people But what's really interesting is the language of salvation keeps taking us back to this this world of Eden, this garden-like place, a place where there is healing, a place for which death does not cast its shadow, a place for which curse is no longer found. For the Jews, they imagined this paradise It was up in heaven waiting for them. It was up in heaven waiting for the faithful. But what's really interesting as we turn to Genesis chapter 2, in Revelation, Eden is not simply a place that's waiting up in heaven for us to come to, but is a reality that comes to us to join a renewed earth. Have a look in Genesis chapter 22, verse 21. Here we have John's vision of this reality, of this salvation reality. And I want you to notice, as you cast your eye on verses 1 to 4, what are some of the parallels in Genesis chapter 22 that we see back from Genesis chapter 2? Let me just read the first verse. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Just cast your eye there. What are some of the parallels that we see in John's vision and that of what we saw back in Genesis chapter 2? What are some themes, some common things that we see? River, yeah. 
The language of river is found in both. Yep. What else? There's a source. Source of... Oh, this, as it yet? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's sources from God. Other kind of parallels that we see between Genesis and Revelation? Yeah, it's teeming with life. The other one that's uh, pretty obvious one that no one's mentioned. We've talked about rivers, life, God as a source of life. Anything else? Tree. Tree. See how the book of Revelation paints before us a picture of where we are headed. Here is our... Here is our freedom. Here is what's on the other side. Indeed, here is, as we'll see in a moment, a reality that is present for us even in some sense now. Because God, well, God takes us in salvation back to Eden. God makes the end like the beginning. But it's not simply the same as Eden because this is no Eden that John sees. This is a new Eden. And I want to just show you a couple of the ways in which the new Eden is as majestic as the old Eden was. The new Eden is so much greater. You see there in verse 22, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. It's interesting the language there of verse 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. In Eden there was just one tree of life. In Revelation we see that it could well be that there are multiple trees of life. On each side of the river was the tree of life. And these trees are no longer cursed. They are bearing fruit, 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The picture here is not just of one tree of life, but of many trees. And these trees are continually producing fruit. It's a growing sense of abundance here in the book of Revelation. Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century American preacher, preached this quite incredible sermon on heaven called uh, Heaven is a World of Love. And uh, as familiar as we might be with the concept of love being present in heaven, Edward says that love is present in its fullness from one day and then from the next day it grows and then from the day after that it grows and then from the day after that it grows. It's present in fullness from the very first day but grows throughout all eternity. Here we have here the new Eden. The one tree of life is not just here. There are multiple trees and they give their fruit. They never cease to provide life and fruit. And the leaves, we're told in verse 2, of the tree of life are the healing for the nations. Not just one tree, but many. Not just healing for the people of Israel, but for the whole of the world. Here we have a picture. Here we have a picture of 
this new Eden. Many trees, leaves of healing for all, never ceasing to yield their fruit. They don't cease to yield their fruit because, verse 3, there's no curse. The curse that excluded humanity from this blessing has been done away with. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. This throne belongs both to God and to the Lamb. Why was there blessing in Eden? Because God was present there by that tree. Why is there blessing, untold blessing for eternity here in the new Eden? Because God is present there, not just by a tree, he's present there himself on his throne. A throne stresses often the inaccessibility. You don't go running up to someone on a throne. But here the picture of Revelation is one not of inaccessibility, but of accessibility. God is with his people. There was blessing in Eden because God was there. There is untold blessing in the new Eden because God is certainly, certainly there. See, we long for Eden. We long. We long for an ultimate future. One for which healing has been brought. Because we need that. We need a sense of renewal a sense of the way things are in our lives and in our world somehow changing. We long for things to be better. And here we have in the book of Revelation this promise that one day they will be. Because there's a healing that's being offered here, a healing from our failure to trust in God, a healing from our exile away from God, a healing from the harm that others have caused to us and that we have caused to others. And this healing has been brought about by another tree. Because that lamb, that lamb who is present with the Lord God there, was slain upon a tree. As Jesus died on the cross, it looked as though death was mocking humanity again. But we read in the Gospels that he was raised three days later. And so the great enemy of life, the great enemy of vitality, death, is snatched away, is destroyed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And by faith, when we trust in the Lord Jesus, we are united to him and we are welcomed into this new Eden, the old age of sin of death, of thorns, of thistles, of disorder, of disillusionment. That age entered its dusk when Jesus rose from the dead. And when we trust in him, that hope, that hope of new creation rises. It rises in Jesus' body, but it also rises in our hearts. The Apostle Paul says that when someone trusts in the Lord Jesus... This new creation is not just a future reality. This new creation has started in them. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 
And so there's great encouragement, I think, for us. For us who are peering over this wall. For us who are burdened by the weight of our dissatisfaction with our lives, of that of our world, for the way in which darkness and death creeps in. What led Jens and Marion all the way to China? It was a clear vision and a clear hope that when they got there, there was their freedom, there was their new life. And so I think there's great encouragement for, he- for us here this afternoon that we have a clear idea of this reality for which God is bringing us in the Lord Jesus. You know, the Bible is really scattered with such beautiful, poetic and pictorial language. Most of it refers to this new heaven and this new earth. And it's intended for us to, to read It's intended for us just to get a glimpse because when you just get a glimpse of this new Eden, that's enough. That's enough to focus our lives and our direction towards them. Jesus warns us not to store our treasures here on earth where rust and moth and thieves steal, but to store for ourselves treasures in heaven. So often we think, that if we could just create the right place, then everything in our lives would be fantastic. One of the things, I've been on holidays this week, and I've noticed in beautiful places like Huskisson, everyone goes to a real estate agent. Why? They're on holidays. It's a fantastic place. When you're in a fantastic place, you just want to be there. You don't want to leave. Why do we do that? Because we think the place creates what we want. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what we need to be reminded of tonight. It's not the place that creates that renewal and that healing. It's the person. There's vitality. There's everything we want in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is there. He is there. And so when we trust in him and when we know that he is taking us to that place, That's everything we need. That's everything that we need to see and that we need to glimpse until we're taken home there to heaven. Amen. We're going to stand.